Our study of the book of Hebrews brings us to chapter 6 tonight, particularly chapter 6, about verse 4. You remember the beginning of the chapter starts out as the writer is encouraging them to go on and advance beyond the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Not laying the foundation again, but it's time to go on. Verse 3 says, this we will do if God permit. And then verse 4 he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Uh, we'll, let's go ahead and read verse 7 and 8. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it and bring forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end it is to be burned. Now go back to verse 4. For it is impossible. I've really spent a fair, I think a fairly good amount of time this past week with just this one verse, and particularly this one word, even though I know what the word impossible means. It's not possible. If something is impossible, it's not possible. If something's impossible, there's no way that it's going to happen. It doesn't have the ability to take place. It's just not going to happen. Put it as simple as that. What is it, though, in verse 4 that we find that it is impossible? Notice he's talking about Christians here, and that's important. Remember, we've already mentioned several times the book of Hebrews forever destroys this whole idea of once saved, always saved, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, however you want to define it. But this idea that once a Christian, or once a person becomes a Christian, he can never again sin in such a way that he'll ever again be lost in his sin. And that, that, that's a comforting doctrine, were it not for the fact that it's a totally false doctrine, and it's simply not taught in the Scriptures. But the book of Hebrews puts an end to that doctrine forever. Notice in verse 4, it is impossible for those, now he, listen to the way he describes these people, who were once enlightened, and they've tasted the heavenly gift, and they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the, they've tasted the, you know, they, once, they were once in darkness, living in darkness. They, they've been enlightened. Uh, they, they tasted the heavenly gift now, and that means they experienced it. That's important. When Christ tasted death for every man, he experienced it. They tasted the heavenly gift. That is, they experienced it. There's no question that these were Christians. Is that right? And notice he said they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And, they, they and, and it's, it's blessings and fellowship with the Holy Ghost there as well. They've tasted the good word of God. They've experienced the blessings that come from obedience to the word of God. And the powers of the world to come. I think the world to come is still talking about uh, not the world to come as in eternity, but the world to come talking still about that present age though. And the powers, perhaps they've seen this and witnessed this then, uh, the evidence and the powers and probably may even tie that into the miraculous gifts there of uh, the present age. That is for them the present age. But notice he says, if they shall fall away. In verse 4 and 5, it is obvious he's writing to people who are Christians. And remember from the book of Hebrews now, it's important I think to help us understand this, keep the context of the book. They're being tempted to go back into Judaism. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. And he says, it's impossible for these Christians, verse 6 now, if they fall away. 
In fact, I'm reading from the King James, and the King James says, if they fall away. Some translations, I know the New American Standard, perhaps the ESV as well, I'm not sure. Some translations will render this, and then have fallen away. And actually, that's, I believe, to be the more correct translation here. And it does make a difference. Notice how he's reading in verse 4. For those who were once enlightened, that's past tense. They have tasted, that's past tense. They were made partakers, that's past tense. They have tasted the good word of God, verse 5, that's past tense. And then the more correct translation, I believe, would be in verse 6, and have fallen away, for then they have fallen away. You may word it a little different, but the point is, it's in past tense as well. And the Greek would verify this. That's important. Because some people now who want to try to go to great lengths to support their ideal, you know, once saved, always saved. And here it's talking about Christians who've fallen away. But they will tell you, no, 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 that's not what that verse means. Verse 6 here, if they shall fall away. And so to support the ideal of once saved, always saved, they'll say, listen, what he's talking about here is a hypothetical case that would never happen anyway. Oh, if they did fall away, they would be lost, but they're not going to fall away. That's, that's their argument. I mean, you know, the person who's truly been saved won't fall away. That's a false argument. Obviously, he's talking about here about Christians who have been once enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They have tasted the good word of God. And in verse 6, and then they have fallen away. That's who he's talking about. And he goes on to say then, it's impossible, verse 4, for these people who have become Christians and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again into repentance. Okay. What is it about these people's situation that makes it impossible? And this is what I struggled with a lot this past week. And I'll admit, the reason I struggled with it is because I've read several... I mean, I read different places. I read different commentaries and things. And I've read several written by people who I consider a lot more knowledgeable than I am in the Scriptures. And it's probably not a good idea to disagree with people you consider to be more knowledgeable than you are. But I do it anyway. <laughs> because a lot of times, if you read different places on this, you're going to read, well, it's impossible to renew them well, and first of all, who, he's talking about, who is he talking about? He's talking about people who've fallen away. It's not talking about a Christian who just kind of, you know, fell into sin through his own shortcomings and sinned. That's not who he's talking about here. Uh, we read about in the Bible what happens when as Christians we sin. How do we deal with it? First John, we confess it and it's forgiven. What is our attitude toward another brother? Look at Galatians 6. One is overtaken in a fault. We can help to restore him. Look at James 5, it's talking about praying for one another, and if we help convert a sinner from his way, but I believe it's talking about a Christian there who's fallen into sin, and, and uh, we can still pray for him and help him. And the Bible there says that we save a soul from death. So he's not talking about just any Christian that sins and needs help. Uh, but a lot of your commentaries will tie this in with even the eternal sin, some of them will. And I don't know why they call it eternal sin. Because frankly, isn't all sin eternal consequences unless you repent of it. So I don't know why they call it that. but some, I know why they call it that. But I guess I just disagree with them calling it that. 
Um, some people say, well, this is talking about people whose hearts have become so hardened. See, they've fallen away and their hearts are so hardened that it's impossible for them to repent. Several of your writers will say that, and that's where I'm going to disagree with that. Um, can a person's heart become so hardened that he cannot repent? Now, that, I, that may well be the case. I'm not necessarily denying that as much as I'm simply, I don't think that's what the Scripture is saying here. Can it become so hardened that he will not repent? Well, that's, I think that's a certainty as well. The Bible talks about those who have had their conscience seared with a hot iron. And then on the other hand, you go to Jeremiah 23. I think it's Jeremiah 23 and about verse 29 there. And he talks about, God is talking about his word will operate as a hammer on a rock. And he's not really talking about hammers and rocks. There, That's only a way of illustration there. And he's talking about my word will operate as a hammer on a rock. Is that not saying though my word has the power to even affect a hard heart? I realize this is another discussion for another day, but a lot of people say, well, the problem here is impossible because their hearts are so hardened. But I don't read about hard heart in this text, do you? I mean, I'm not reading that. It's telling us here it is impossible for those who weren't enlightened, and then they fall away, verse 6, to renew them against to repentance, seeing, here's why it's so impossible to bring them back, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. King James says, seeing they crucify. I think the uh, ESV there says, seeing they are crucifying. Uh, uh, New American Standard says they again crucify. The English Standard Version, I believe, says, seeing they are crucifying. All right, now look at this in the whole context of the book of Hebrews. What's Hebrews about? And I know we've gone over this, but I think look at the context of the book of Hebrews to understand this passage. These are Christians who left Judaism to go into Christianity. And the writer's trying to convince them, don't go back, even though you may be tempted to do that. Don't go back. What you have now is so much better. See how much that word appears in Hebrews? Better temple. Better promises, better priesthood, better sacrifice, better rest, better... You name it, everything is better. Don't go back. And they're being tempted to go back. And he's telling them in verse 6, listen, don't do it. Because it is impossible to have those people renewed again to repentance as long as they keep rejecting the Christ. I think that's this point. If you're going to go back and reject Christ and look for salvation in any other way, you're not going to find it. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying. I couldn't decide if you were. I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to ignore you. I couldn't decide there if you were trying to raise your hand or not. Um, my, my, my Bible has a, a cross reference in Matthew 19, which is the real young ruler who says, "Why says, uh, you know, who then should be saved? And 
corresponds with this man, the rich young ruler, the one who turned away and left, which is what we see in Hebrews, a, a person who has kept what God has commanded him, but then has turned and left. He says, with this man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so the, the person that is being talked about in Hebrews 6 is one that has turned and left, turned his back and completely left. Not like, not like you said, uh, has, has stumbled and has repented, but one who refuses to repent, which also ties into the, the eternal sin comment that you also had in Matthew, which is the sin unrepented of. It's so, a sin unrepented of, basically, I, I believe, but yes. Yes, and so it's a sin unrepented of, and, and this is what is impossible. If someone sins and does not repent of it, for that man, it is impossible. It's impossible. For him to come back. Yeah, there's another verse that, Nor is there any other name given among men where we must be saved. If you reject Christ, you turn away from the only means of salvation that is possible. Exactly. You see in Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other. Exactly. No other man, no other place other than his church. When Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, that is very singular. I am the way, the truth, the life. And contrary to many today who want you to believe he's one of the ways, one of the truths, one of the ways to lie, I'm it. And I really, I think, and there's a lot more I could talk about in verse 4, 5, and 6 from what I've read about this last week and not going to get it all of it. But some will say it's even it's impossible for a man to do it, but God can. In other words, if somebody's, and I don't believe this, I'm not sure why I'm bringing it up, but... It's just another thing you read. Well, if somebody's falling away like this, it's possible for man to bring them back, but God can. Well, there's, a uh, there's, there's a lot, lot of different ideas on all of this. There's a warning. I mean, remember in the uh, original Greek, there is no chapter breaks. And so we have to have the entirety of the whole context here. And I know you studied this prior to me coming in here, but starting in verse uh, 12 of the previous chapter and going through verse 14, He's warning these people here that are not growing properly that they're going to do this if they don't change their ways and come to God. He's warning them this is what's going to happen. If you, exactly. if you don't change it, that's why he's told them, listen, you ought to be teachers by now. You need to be taught again the first principles and go back to it. And if you don't make some kind of correction, some kind of change, this is what's going to happen. And it is interesting sometimes to see the to see the New Testament without so much the punctuation we have as it's one large sentence oftentimes. But I think his point in verse 6 is simply, if you're going to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism, it's impossible to be saved. It's impossible to be renewed again as long as you keep on crucifying the Christ. As long as you keep on rejecting Christ. I'm not sure. This might be similar to what we read in Hebrews 10, 25, and 6 there. Remember in Hebrews 10, 25, we often look at the 10, 25, you know, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner or custom of some is, but exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But then go on the next verse, he says, for if we sin willfully, what is he going to say? There is no more sacrifice for sin. See, 
again, salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. If you, if you and and you leave that, there is no salvation. If you sin willfully after you receive the knowledge of the there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversary, the truth. If you, again, if you reject Christ, which again, John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except by me. You reject the truth, and the truth, specific truth he's talking about there, and I need to be quiet, but <laughs> in verse 25 there, to forsake the assembly, but ultimately, being that God's word is truth, John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy word, thy word is truth. If you reject Christ and what he has given us in order to be our means of salvation, there's nothing else that can save you. There's all that's left for you is a fiery indignation which will devour the adversary. And that goes back to what we're talking about here in Hebrews chapter uh, 6 and verse 4. That's why it's impossible. There's nothing left. If you reject Christ, there's nothing left. It is impossible to have something other than Christ. The law cannot save you. What you're trying to go back to cannot save you anymore. After his death, Colossians 2.14, upon the cross, it lost its power. It died, and it cannot save you. The only thing that is left is Christ. If you reject that, there's nothing left. There's nothing else. Now, this concept really, I think, seems pretty simple to us, doesn't it? Salvation is only through Christ. But at the same time, we're living in a very uh, confused world who expects people to be very tolerant. And so that's why you hear a lot of expressions like uh, not only about different denominations, as I mean different from one another. I'm not saying the church. I'm saying different denominations as opposed to the church. Not only different denominations, but you hear now in different religions even, uh, Islam and other things as well, you know, we all serve the same God. It's totally false. We don't serve the same God. And that's not difficult to disprove. Number one, Jesus is God, John 1. They don't believe that. So point again in verse 6, I think it's simply, you fall away, there is no... No, really, there's no hope as long as you keep rejecting Christ. Now, I think these people could repent and come back, but as long as they, or, or they could stay faithful and not reject Christ, but as long as he's saying this is what's going to happen to you if you reject Christ. Now, think about falling away, even. Falling away typically happens as a process over time, does it not? I don't know anybody that's falling away that just told me one day. And they got up and announced to the church, I'm falling away as of today. I'm gone. It doesn't happen that way. It happens over time. But because it happens over time, I really do believe people don't give the thought to it that they ought to. You and I, we all know people who have fallen away. Would they have fallen away if in fact they had given thought to their souls that they ought to? And what would happen? So now we, we see in verse 7 and 8, there's another difference in translation in 7 and 8 I wanted to point out. Here's his, here's his lesson in verse 6, if you will, or his point. Verse 7 and 8, here's his illustration. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh upon it, that brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receive blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. 
I don't know how to understand much from verse 8 other than to be burned. It's probably parallel to what I'm reading in John 15, 6 is reference to hell. But here's what some will do again. I've got to I've got to support somehow my belief in once saved, always saved. In fact, I'll I'll take a little side trip here. I'm probably going to I'm thinking my next broadcast Monday morning may be on putting the cart before the horse. We know that we're supposed to put the horse before the cart, and the cart's supposed to be led by the horse. Sometimes when people study the Bible, they put the cart before the horse, and that they let the meaning of the Scriptures be determined by their belief. It ought to be the other way around. Our beliefs are to be determined by the meaning of the Scriptures. So if I do that, Monday, I guess you've already heard it and don't have to listen. So anyway, there it is. But the point is simply this. In verse 8, but that which, reading from the King James, but that which, it makes it sound like there's two different groups here. The group in verse 7 who receive uh, the, the earth in verse 7 that receives this soil and is productive. But that which in verse 8, almost like but that other group, they received it and they weren't productive. So this is what happens to them. So if I'm, you see, if, you see the point here. If I'm going to defend my false doctrine of once saved, always saved, I have to say, no, 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 no. Verse, uh, this is two different groups he's talking about. Verse 8 is talking about a group that never really received the word to begin with. See, these weren't Christians in verse 8. And again, if you're really staying, I think, truer to the uh, original text here, you're going to see... Um, other translations like, uh, well, let me, uh, in verse 8, the New American Standard, but I don't have others with me. I think the ESV translates it the same way as well. In verse 8, it says, but if, if it yields thorns and thistles. Instead of saying, but that which, and making it sound like two different groups, one that obeyed, one that didn't. Really, a better translation for this is to say, but it, verse 8. You see the difference? It might be a subtle difference, but it's a significant difference. If, you, if it's translated in verse 8 as, but if it yields thorns and thistles, then it's still relating to that same group of people. Okay? So now what he's talking about, if this, if you, if this group, this is his illustration. If these people receive the Word of God and they obey and they remain fruitful, then that's fine. They'll be blessed because of it. But if they, the same group of people now, say not two different groups of people, the same group of people, but if they fall away, well, they're going to be punished because of it. And again, that's why he's trying to warn these people. Don't go back to... Uh, this may not be good grammar, but if Christianity is better, better, better all throughout the book of Hebrews, he's telling them, don't go back to something that is worse or worse or worse. That might be poor grammar, isn't it? Well, it but that's what he's telling them anyway. Pardon? It remains constant. If it's it there, it remains constant throughout the entire analogy. If you break that up into two groups, all of a sudden your, your analogy is no longer constant. Uh, in the first part of it, these, this group wasn't like tasted of the heavenly gifts fell away the second part here has to remain constant with the first part that's part of, uh, of uh, you really lose your illustration if you lose your consistency exactly. there 
And so he's talking, it is consistent. He's talking about the same group here. He's not talking about another group, but someone to make it another group. Again, to define the idea or just defend the idea of once saved, always saved. But we know what happens, I think, in John 15, where we read about the vine and the branches, the unfruitful, and the withered away and dies, and then it is burnt. And I think we're reading kind of parallel to that. But blood, verse 9, we are persuaded. Some may say we are convinced or we are confident. We are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So in verse 9, but we are, we are confident of this, that you're not going to do this. I mean, we're confident that you're not going to fall away. And so some say he's kind of changing tone, maybe here from a rebuke to, to words of encouragement here, you know. Uh, Sometimes people need to be rebuked, but they probably always need to be encouraged in Maybe he's changing from a note of rebuke to a note of encouragement. I think that's right. Uh, I also can read this a different way if I wanted to. I think that's right. I think it's words of encouragement. But do you ever remember ever getting in trouble as a child and your parents said, I expect better from you? I don't think that's what he's saying here, but I guess it could be better. Uh, it could be a possibility when he said, beloved. We are confident of better things for you. Well, if, you if you look back, um, again, back at the verses five, uh, 12 through 14 of chapter 5, kind of seems like to me that's what he's saying there. I expect better of you. That's why it may very well be maybe an encouragement, but also not, through, not totally through rebuking him yet. It may be the idea of I expect better things. That I expect better from you. They haven't anything wrong. They just... Uh, you, you Rod, you, you know better. I expect better out of you. I've, I've heard that several times when I was a child, and we'll leave it at that. Uh, spare you the details. All right, but notice also in verse 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, that is, towards God's name. How did they do that? And that you have ministered to the saints, and do minister. I think the point is, and do still minister. You are ministering. But when we do something to minister or serve other Christians, we're serving God, are we not? Now, you read that in Matthew as well. I think Matthew uh, 25, probably. When did we see you hungry and thirsty, you see? And his point here is that they were a benevolent group. Now, I think it's also important to remember they were a benevolent group. He's saying here, uh, God, God's not going to forget your work and your labor of love which you showed toward him when you ministered to the saints. God's not going to forget that. They were a, a benevolent group. But that didn't excuse their ignorance. See, he's already told them in Hebrews 5, you should have been teachers by now. Their, their good works that they do, that didn't somehow just erase uh, the problem of their ignorance. Now, do you hear anybody today, somebody maybe uh, some some denomination sometime even, somebody's trying to defend, it may be some congregation of the Lord's church that somebody's trying to defend, and they're kind of way, they're way out, they're kind of off in their beliefs and their practices. And you may hear somebody say, yeah, but they do so many good works. I mean, look at the things they're doing. Look at the way they're helping people. And 
And we must be helping people. That's a sign of being a disciple of Christ. That's a sign of our love. But my point is that being involved in good works doesn't excuse being ignorant. It did not excuse uh, the recipients of this letter from their ignorance when he says, um, you're doing good works, you're benevolent. But you still should have been teaching by now and you weren't. You have need to teach you have someone to teach you again. So he's telling him, yeah, you're good. Now notice verse 11, we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Uh, again, we desire that every one of you, verse 11, some will say we desire that each of you, I think that's more of the point. They were a part of a good group that was benevolent, active. They were part of a group that could be commended for the things they did but yet he still says in verse 11, we desire that each, now he puts it more on an individual level, and each one of you to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. You know, uh, God wants us to be a part of a congregation of his people. That's obvious. But, you think about this, and I don't believe when Judgment Day comes, we're going to really have a chance to explain ourselves in this way. But, you know, imagine going to Judgment Day and, and with all of your shortcomings, with all of your faults, and with all of your negligence, perhaps, with all of your apathy. I'm not saying this in your case. I'm this is saying if somebody's in this situation, you know. And imagine and saying, yes, but I'm a member of the Colonel Church of Christ. <laughs> See, the point is, just be, God wants us to be part of a, of a group, a congregation of His people. But just being a part of that group is not going to ensure our salvation, is it? Because your name's in the directory, and you're recognized, and, and you're a part of that. That's not going to assure your salvation, is it? Yeah, but what, did you, what have you done, Rod? I know what they did, but what have you been doing? Or not doing? Whatever the case may be. I think that's part of his, uh, his, his point he's trying to get across here. Yeah, you're, you're, you're benevolent, verse 10, but we desire that each one of you show that same diligence. Diligence. You're going to be a diligent student. You're going to be studious, as in study, to show thyself approved, as in be diligent, from the American Standard Version. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope, what is hope? We know what hope is, don't we? Desire coupled with expectation. It's not just one or the other. It's both together. You take away either one, you don't have any hope. And also, he says, unto the end. Be you steadfast. See? Unmovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15. I think in Galatians 6, he said something to the effect of, let us not be weary in studying Hebrews, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I say that because I'm going slower than I had originally anticipated, but I'm, trust me, I'm not going nearly as slowly as I could because there's so much more that could be said. And I'm not at a good stopping point, but I will stop at verse 13. Now verse 12. Next lesson, we will start at verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12.